folks, you have stumbled in once again to Full Contact Cannabis, and I'm sitting here with Mark Stepp of Uppercut Media in Los Angeles, Abby McCullough, and Ava Avila in Nashville, and I, of course, am Harold Jarbo, aka the Old Hand Farmer, and we are talking to Donald Saucy of Columbia River Cannabis, one of the oldest recreational companies in the United States. How are you doing, Donald? Wow, that's a pretty decent accolade. I'm doing well, man. How are you guys doing? It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. It really is. We've got our second day of full sunshine up here, and summer has officially arrived. Columbia River Cannabis is situated in Othello, Washington? Yeah, we, we are currently in Othello, Washington. We were originally in Bridgeport, Washington, alongside the Columbia River Gorge. And so we just moved you know, about a couple hours south, where a little bit further away from the, the river, but it's super dry, super, uh, uh, just really, really dry and a great place to grow our cannabis. Do we want to go into your journey into cannabis? Not too much. You have, <laughs> well, I mean, you've been Gosh. doing it a long, long time. We could spend two or three hours on how long you've been in cannabis. Yeah. I, and to be fair, you know, on the business side, it, it's been not that long, right? I mean, it's what, six years into the, the recreational legal no, side I, of it? I've got, you've been doing, trying to do this since 2013 yeah well yeah and and last time i checked it's 2021 so i know gosh it's been a while hasn't it now that we take a little inventory yeah so we at both at one time i worked for columbia river cannabis you when you came aboard it was in 2013 wasn't it yes sir Okay. 2020, late 2012 into 2013. And you came in as a participant and as an investor. That's right. Yeah. Initially as an investor. And then as I saw things develop, I'm like, okay, I I better get involved. (laughs) I better be part of what's going on here in detail, not just, uh, you know, from a investor point of view. So I dove in, you know, I dove into the production side of cannabis on a larger scale. We went for a tier three license, which is the largest size canopy that you can grow in Washington state. And we actually had three of them. We actually had, if you remember Jarbo, we had three tier three licenses. We soon learned that that was way over our head. And I came aboard, I think in January of 2014, because basically CRC was looking for people and I passed myself off that I knew how to grow it. And so the, <laughs> the person who was running time hired me. And that's when me and you found out basically at the same time that if we wanted CRC to get it together, that we had to be hands-on. Yeah. And to, to be clear, you know, the amount of interest in the beginning was tremendous, right? I mean, there was probably about 15 people that were involved on the initial end with really not no plan at all and so it was just really trying to figure out how to work with each other how we're going to really grow this company and and what really makes sense and so it eventually got whittled down otherwise i don't think we would be talking (laughs) but yeah through that we had a lot of structural issues at first uh in the organization and whatnot and that kind of really slowed us down but we just you know commit to bringing in the resources and we did 
and we grew a couple of years in Bridgeport quite successfully, not to what my satisfaction, but it was unbelievable experience. I've never seen cannabis grow out of the ground like it did <laughs> in Bridgeport. I was just shocked, but it wasn't sustainable. So we ended up moving down to Othello, where we're amongst a very competent group of farmers who's niched out, you know, their operation and their market. So we're, we're working with them. And so far, they produce some really, really nice cannabis. And they're doing it under hoops. And it's clean. And it's tasty. And it's strong. And it's, uh, it's everything that I thought it would be. And, I, and now it's just a matter of, you know, really tweaking it so that we can get our brand out there and our our name on the CRC side, that's going to probably be a little bit, but once the market stabilizes, which I think it's becoming, then our group is more interested in throwing more resources at the at CRC. But until then, we're going to see how it shakes out. I'm going to take you back. You said under hoop. So you yeah. guys are doing uh, light depot. That's right. So how many crops do you think you're going to get this year using light depot? From what I understand, we're going to do a combination. Last year, we did the full light depot, we ran into some challenges, as you can imagine. And then we realized that, you know, there's only so much we can manage light depot. It's almost half and half uh, at this point. So we'll do, it's yet to see, we're, we're planning, we can do up to four light depot crops per year, but we're shooting for three. Whoa. And yeah, so it is, you are yet to see how, what their production is going to be. <laughs> I love the way you exhaled there. It's just like, yeah. Oh, oh God. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Here we go again. Uh, I know. Yeah. It's, uh, let's, can we go? <laughs> Since you have this history, we're, we're where you are now. I'd love to go back to those, that earlier part when, because let's, I mean, when we talk about being a pioneer, like right now, I think today, Connecticut's governor is going to sign a bill doing recreational in Connecticut. Yay. All right. The 17th state, I think, 18th, 17th, 18th, mm -hmm. might be the 18th state. That shows you how quickly this is going. But let's go back to 2012 real quick. Did you guys think the referendum was going to pass? Yes. Everybody was real confident that you were Oh, yeah. Because we had a we had a very well established medical structure already in Washington, probably the oldest in the country. You know, we were we were on board with the medical and me as a consumer, and then me coming in and trying to figure out how to provide for that market. And then you know, the, then the laws came out, and where the proposals came out, and we're like, okay, here it comes. And and being Washington State, we know typically how Washington moves, so. If we were in Florida, that'd be different, right? Right. Well, but all right. So, so here it is. Everybody wakes up the day after the election, yeah. and, and everybody's kumbayaing, and the phone calls are going quick. How long did it take you guys to start getting this up? All right, let, you know, basically, here it is, 2012, 13. You guys are putting it together. When did you harvest your first crop? It was the, so we licensed in October and we light, and then we harvested the following year. So in October of 2014. Yeah, we, we were licensed then. So we basically prepared over the winter and then got a late crop in because we, there were still some structural things that we needed to ensure. Like we, we ended up buying greenhouses. We didn't have those up. We had our pole building that didn't get fully built out. And so then 
we're trying to put all that together, fell behind, got the plants in the ground anyways, in a massive level, like a massive level, because we ended up splitting our grounds with another farmer. Between the two of us, we produced, oh gosh, almost a couple thousand pounds. And um, that didn't, you know, they didn't quite work out business-wise, but as far as the production, it was quite impressive. So we were quite excited. We knew that, you know, and confident that we would be able to at least grow something out there. Really, you know, we kind of went at this in a, in a very rudimentary way, I would hate to say. I mean, we, a lot of us were not as experienced as we'd like to be. So a lot of it was a learning process. So what was it? Was it the compliancy or was it the fact that all of a sudden you guys went from a plant count of a, what, about 45, 50, 100 plants to mm-hmm. a few thousand plants? Mm-hmm. What do you, looking back, what was the biggest challenge? Understanding how to scale, you know, we, we were going from an indoor medical to a small patch outdoor to a large patch outdoor. And we just overlooked the complexities of this, the large scale of it. And, you know, that and defining our brand and really knowing what, what we want to bring to market. I mean, honestly, the first couple of years, we were just, we were just treading water really. You know, you know, the, the group really cut down after a couple of years because because even though we were able to produce and that was where the success lies, we weren't really able to get it to market. And that is another, you know, huge challenge. I mean, we just one thing after another, Jarbo. And yeah, I know that's why I bailed. No regrets, really. <laughs> made, yeah. I was when you were talking about those people left. I was one yeah. of them. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you were one of them exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah. We had we had the whole group out there. We had people. We recruited people from Michigan, Tennessee, Nebraska. You know, we had everything there. We were we were everyone was wonderful. They were quite knowledgeable in what they were supposed to be doing. And admittedly, our organization and just the overall leadership in the market is is really what prevented us from just you know, moving along quickly in the first two years. What, what was but I don't have any regrets. You know, I just think that uh, all of that was great learning experience and hopefully we're just able to apply that moving forward. What was the uh, number one reason people were leaving the business? Confidence in not only the market because it was so up and down in the beginning and, and also, you know, overall confidence that we would be able to put this thing together in a organized manner with a you know backed with a brand and i think that that's you know where we ultimately you know lost our step per se there's some really strong individuals in in cannabis organizations i don't know if that you find that true jarbo oh yeah just it's ego driven super serious everyone's got their egos and it's it's for some reason it's quite intense in the cannabis side um but you know getting through that is it was just a real massive load of of uh obstacles and opportunities you know what i learned was just you know you really have to understand what's coming around the corner what's beyond everything in front of you you can manage you know it's just what comes at you. Jarbo has a really good step on that. 
and and I've been super impressed with how he's managed to understand the market, communicate the market. It's just been, and I have to say, and a huge credit to Jarbo for helping me stay in the game, you know, because as you guys can hear, this is not something anybody wants to be a part of, you know. Let's talk about the earlier days. One of the things I remember so astutely was the first year of legal sales in Washington. The sales first started, how much were people getting for a pound of flour? The guys that first, oh man, they're, uh, you're talking about wholesale? Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying is, because part yeah. of it was, is that they they licensed stores before farmers were ready. So there yeah. was this huge demand for, for cannabis. Yeah, there were $5,000 pounds out there uh, for their first you know few months. Uh, there was $5,000 pounds out there. There was a guy who produced quite like much of what we did. Uh, and he brought his inventory to a market where he, in, he auctioned out all of his inventory. And you would think that that price, he, you know, you would never be able to get a good price for that <laughs> method. But he, he made out like, he made out like, you know, he did really, really well. He sold over, you know, he sold his thousand pounds uh, of inventory for an average of $2,500 each. And he, he made out after that, you know, that pound was going for more like $400. So let's talk about that transition because this is the, one of the things, because this is podcast, although it's sponsored by Tennessee homegrown, which is CBD and D8. Mm -hmm, there's mm -hmm. a boatload of rec people that listen to this. And that's the, one of the things that has to do is, is that supply and demand. And that initially any state that comes on board, the demand is goes out way in front of the production. That's right. So I did leave, you know, disclaimer, I left Columbia River Cannabis and officially in what, fall 2014, something like that, after they legalized hemp in Tennessee. And mm -hmm. it was just like, uh, my ego said, I'm going to go try to do this on my own. And ended up getting my butt kicked in Tennessee instead of Washington. But the thing we kept in touch and the thing I noticed was, is that how prices went out really, really, really high, and then they plummet. Uh -huh. uh, talk to me about how soon it plummeted, the prices plummeted of flour, and then how you guys adapted. The production is split between indoor and outdoor, and then your various forms of outdoor. You know, in the beginning, it was you know, everybody going into this, except for the medical guys, went outside. And not only that, there was, what, 3,000 licenses to grow. And so the guys that came in early got their price, got their, got, you know, met the demand, got very happy. And the guys that came in slightly after that, which wasn't very long, Jarbo, it was, interestingly enough, I think it was the indoor guys that brought the value back up or, or was pushing the value up instead of the major force downward force it was really when they started getting on board the indoor guys i felt prices started to stabilize and it wasn't until the following year and maybe even a year after that a year and a half after the the first initial year and then even then a lot of the licenses actually didn't quite stabilize until three years later jarbo well, that's Prices reason. didn't stabilize here until, you know, three or four years later, mostly through licensee attrition and also the increase of 
retail licenses because they they added more than the initial allotment, which was very well welcome. But that didn't take, you know, that took about three and a half, four years to happen. So I-502, which is the rec uh, program in Washington, is one of the oldest, and you're still here. What I want to hear about, though, is when the price of flour dropped precipitously. What did you guys do? We, we stopped growing. We simply stopped growing. I mean, it, it was an easy decision. <laughs> and we, we basically inactivated our operations because that was, that, you know, we were, you know, no matter how much effort you'd put into this, you, you'd get nothing back. So we just decided to maintain our, our mothers for one year. And it was just only a year that we stopped. And in that time that we took, you know, we reflected and whatnot, and we're just like, and we just said, you know what, where we're at is really difficult. Location by itself, and then supply and demand, and then this and that. And then we just said, look, we're not going to put any more money into this. And we're just going to try to hang on and not lose our license. And sure enough, with every, new, you know, every new year is a new energy <laughs> to get started. <laughs> So we, we happened to get lucky the, by reactivating the following year after the pause. And with that, we were already in Othello. Were you experiencing oversupply before you shut down? Yes. We, th this market has been oversupplied all the way up until the last year. Like last year, crop finally experienced a price increase in both. Well, indoors always got their price, but outdoor and outdoor um, hoops. Let's go back to you actually going down and being dormant for a year. That to me sounds like one of the smartest things I've heard a cannabis production company ever do. Why is it that so few companies have the discipline to be able to do that? And why did you guys? To be honest with you in the group, it wasn't an easy decision to sh shut down. In fact, there was more pressure to figure out what we were lacking and, and apply that to the next effort. You know, as it's marketing, it really was at that time. I remember having a very, you know, intense conversation with my partner about marketing because I felt like, you know, if, if we just open up that op a market opportunity a little more with with advertising and with, you know, branding and content and all of that, that we would be able to be able to continue. And the overall consensus at the end of the day was, look, we, we got it. We just need to there was there's more to it than that. And we need to we need to stop. So it wasn't an easy decision because we were looking for, you know, solutions <laughs> to, to, to add more resources to our fledgling company. The reason I'm bringing this up is, is that right now you guys were suffering with an overabundance in rec uh, high THC cannabis. Now it's hit the CBD world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Basically me and you had role, role reversal the whole time that high THC was you know, there was too much, you know, CBD, you couldn't get enough and everybody over, overproduced. The reason I'm mentioning that, would you suggest what you guys did to, for a lot of high CBD cannabis companies? I, as far as, uh, as far as, far as reduction. Well, and... that, that whole, that, you know, like just exactly what you said, we're mm. going to keep the operation going, but we're going to stand back. We're going to take a deep breath and look and maybe be able to see it with a different perspective that you couldn't see when you're in the moment. 
it's highly advisable. I think it's one of the best things that anyone can do because, especially in this business, because it's so fast and furious and every, there's so much excitement in the initial stage of cannabis operations that we're all blinded by, you know, certain things. And, and when you, when you're just facing a forces that are out of your control, yeah, I mean, you come to that, but a lot of people believe that they have control. So, you know, it's just a matter of getting over the, the reality of what, you know, what resources do you have? What, what's the outside forces and a, a good assessment of <laughs> you ready to step in the ring at this time or not, you know? One of the things that has always amazed me is the, the concept, and me and you have spoken about this, is about that green rush, how per, people who are perfectly rational in every other part of their business life get in cannabis and start spending money like a drunk sailor. Yeah, why, why is that? <laughs> well, but Especially... I mean, <laughs> yes, why is that? Is there that much money lying around? <laughs> I don't, but I mean, we saw it especially in in Washington in the early days, uh, especially on the processing side. You had these people who went and built these big facilities and then figured out they really didn't know how to run them. Oh, yes. That's over and over again. I, I know an example of a company that spent, you know, I mean, they're, they're in a very wonderful, amazing, like I think a hundred thousand square foot indoor warehouse. And, you know, they got in there, they got the land and they started building this thing out. And during the times that I was just talking about where, you know, the market was so unstable, you know, three and a half million dollars in, they finally got it built out in, in this market. And, and so anyways, they, they struggled dearly. It was one of those things where the owner was extremely excited about a market. He had lots and lots of money. Uh, this was not his main focus. And there probably lies the problem. Things didn't quite turn out very well for that company. They're, they're no longer licensed. So, or they got moved on to another owner. Ouch. <laughs> you know, three and a half million in and you realize this isn't what you really wanted to do or you realize that it's not going to work. Yeah, and it's and it's interesting because I even you know I even said um, you know when you find out about the ownership sometimes it's really fascinating because you'll find owners that are very very much into their investment they're they're deeply in they're they're very involved and then you have owners that are completely opposite and count on you know the resources that they employ and as um, two starkly different approaches one highly more recommended than the other. <laughs> That's all I can say. Well, expand on which one's more highly recommended. Well, when you have money that's actually in a person behind the money that's very that's interested in their in, in their return, you're going to be faced with some really good business challenges and relevant, right? Because the gen the you know the ownership is in tune. They're engaged. They consume cannabis. They they're involved with cannabis. And so there's a lot of folks who, by the nature of the business, they didn't want to be associated with cannabis. They just wanted to put their money into cannabis. And for those folks, it's quite challenging. And I would have to include that in our group partially. It's very difficult to run a, a company when, when the owner is, is uh, not setting up the, you know, expectations and employing skillful resources. 
we all know this, right? This is nothing new. <laughs> well, but, but, okay. But you normally don't have people and let's say that they're a, a, a doctor and then all of a sudden say, well, I'm going to build a nuclear reactor. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and the thing that gets me about it is that people who were really good in the other aspects of their life, whether whatever it was, mm-hmm. thought that they could easily take their job skills, push it into cannabis, and it would work. THC Farms, the previous example, the three and a half million dollar example is, is uh, right in line with that. That gentleman came from the vape world, right? I mean, you would think that the transition would be quite seamless, but it wasn't for him. There are some transitional um, skills and, and, and whatnot, but not always. It's really understanding the ownership, what their goals are and, and what they want to, you know, what they're trying to accomplish. And if they just leave it up to their crew, then who knows what's going to happen. One of the things I'd love to go into is that how now cannabis is starting to become more specialized. I think in the earlier days, if you were going to be in the cannabis business, you felt you had to grow. You had to do everything. Your company Mm -hmm. has trended more into a 21st century and that you're outsourcing more and more of the aspects of your farm. And it seems as you've done this, you've become a more successful cannabis company. Well, I don't feel like we deserve that accolade yet. You know, really, we're successful in the sense that we've maintained our our small position. Without Did you make lose. money last year? We made a little money last year. I got my first. <laughs> Guess my what? First, <laughs> Guess first what? Check. In, in, in cannabis, that's considered successful. After six years, <laughs> yay! Yeah, yeah. Well, but all right. How many people have done what you did, and they never had a profitable year, and now they have basically a garage full of promotional material that's sitting there, and or sports cars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but Guilty. That, yeah. <laughs> but that's what I'm saying is, you know, that I think part of it is is that as cannabis is going, we're having to reassess. What we do at Tennessee Homegrown, you have this thing where, you know, you, you know, you do, you get this pressure, grow as much as you can. I mean, basically, there's still people in the cannabis business trying to grow their way out of their financial problems. You know, like you said, that after you took that year off, you did radically change things. 100%, just almost everything, really. And so, you know, what, what I'm curious about is when you say, you know, grow more, where do you think that? Why is that something that somebody feels is a worthy pursuit? I, the only analogy I have is that one time my father and his brother, believe it or not, drilled oil wells. They never made any money, but there were enough you know, profit to go on to the next one. And basically at the time there was a glut of oil. And so you know, I overheard a conversation. It's like, why are you still drilling oil wells? And it's just mm-hmm. like, that's what we do. <laughs> I mean, you know, if all you know how to do is grow cannabis, your solution is going to be growing cannabis. That I understand. But when there is more than enough, there's no way to know what is around the corner in terms of the market. Growing more, as I've learned, is really the absolute wrong direction. It becomes counterproductive on a lot of levels. 
Yeah, it really, it, it was a very painful uh, learning experience, but, uh, you know, there was just so much excitement to grow and then to grow, to meet this supposedly demand. And that was another thing. What was the, you know, the demand was always much greater than it actually was. <laughs> and I guess that's where it came from it, it, for us. It's like we, we felt the need to grow more because mistakenly believed that the demand was there. When really there, at that time, there was only, you know, 180 retail licenses that were able to take any product. And so, you know, and cannabis enthusiasm is, is quite infectious, you'd have to admit. That's why I call it green fever. It is. It's I green mean, fever. Well, yeah, I mean, let's face it. The first time you walk out in a big ass field of cannabis, it's cool. It is cool. <laughs> I mean, serious. There, you know, it's like a soundtrack's going off in your head. The, I mean, it is, the first time. The first time. Yeah. <laughs> now I tell you how jaded we are. We have a decent crop, right? A little bit more grown what we wanted because we're trying to grow less, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. And the first thing I look at this crop and it pounded in my head is like, damn, this is going to take two, three, four days to get it out. <laughs> the harvest. That was the first thing I thought of. I was like, damn, that's going to be a lot of work. Yeah. But are you pay, paying attention to the hemp in scene right now, any at all, except through I've me? got, yeah, I, I threw you basically is, is where my attention is. It's in, cause you're, you're really, I, I just feel so fortunate that you're in my life because it's, it's really, I don't have to spend hours and hours, you know, trying to figure out what's going on in hemp. I can just call you. <laughs> you can learn through my mistakes. I love, thank you. Let's see what house Jarbo's suffering. Uh, yeah, just like you so, did with us. Yeah, that's what I was saying to you, Carl. You know, I, this sucks. I hate it. You know, you know, like, but the thing about it, though, is right now, this very thing is happening in hemp for mm -hmm. two years. There has been like eight times more hemp grown than what can be absorbed into the system. And yet this year, there's going to be a huge amount of people that are going to go and grow for the first damn time. Yeah. Do you think that's because the regulated market is not is is somewhat loose in the hemp side? You mean the fact that state governments aren't restricting the amount you can grow? Yeah, for that for that reason. Well, in, I know, in, you know. In, in Tennessee, this was the mentality. It, it really was Darwinian capitalism. We're mm -hmm. going to let I mean, seriously, 2019, 4,000 license. Where do you, you want a license? Right, here's your license. Now, and, you know, may the best woman or man win. And, and, and that's what happened. And so you had this huge amount of money. And I'm like, you know, we're talking $100 million in Tennessee or more alone. And then bang. Bottom fell. And so now what has happened is, is that to people who've lost a lot of money in Tennessee and Kentucky and Illinois and all these other places, that's now shifted to new people losing money in Texas, Florida, mm -hmm. and Georgia. I don't know what it is. The, the rugged exceptionalism that it happened to everybody else, their failure, but it won't happen to me. I'm the exception. That's quite accurate, Jarbo. Because there's a bunch of hampers out there. What's some advice you say all these people who have decided that they're going to go, you know, jump into the green rush? What's some advice you give these guys? 
you know, I would say take a little more time to study the market, take a little bit more time to define what you want to provide to the market in more specific detail. It's not just hemp and how you want to, because when I think about this situation, Jarbo, you've got a huge demand, you've got a huge amount of supply, and there's a supply chain issue. And that supply chain needs to be managed. It needs to be managed with professionalism. It needs to be taken seriously. And I don't know if our cannabis folks, including myself in the early days, was, was, was that. And I think a lot of that contributes to these really difficult challenges that you don't necessarily have to experience if you take a moment and, right. and really try to understand this new business. Well, it, it, as that happens, and in your year down, did you consider going vertical? You know, absolutely. I, as I said, I, I brought to the table all these other solutions like going vertical, you know, in, in, uh, bolstering our marketing, working our branding, thinking about, you know, packaging and and this and that, and just the overall consensus is like, hey, you know, the market is really not supporting this right now. And there's the competition that's already well-established with well-established brands. You know, it would just be too much of an effort or risk. And I, I, we thought about it quite a bit in, in the group. And our, the ultimate decision was to shut it down. When in doubt, rest. That's that's right. You know, we got to go back to the drawing board, you know, get, get, get prepared. Like Jarbo was saying, you know, you're going to be harvesting a more than your physical body can handle. So what do you, what do we do about it? We get, we get ready, right? We, we start working out. <laughs> <laughs> we start eating decent food. And then we, we, when that big moment comes that, you know, a whole week on, you know, bending over and, and all that and, and you get through it. But if you're not ready, you're going down. That thing about it is how much can someone realistically, let's say you're even a farmer, realistically, how much of a learning curve are you going to have? As a farmer? Well, I'm just, just saying, as a farmer? even if you come in and let's say I, I did, I studied my market and I've dotted my I's and crossed my T's and all mm -hmm. that. Still, how abrupt is that learning curve? Yeah, it's, it's quite abrupt for, I mean, from what I experienced, it's, there's not very many farmers who know how to just come in and grow a lot of weed. You know, most, a lot of these farmers, much like maybe even myself, grew our own little, you know, controlled area. And then we think that we can do it on a much larger scale. And I don't know if I answered the question, but. Yeah, bingo yeah. on the large scale idea going from small. Yeah in one leap well yeah it's usually one big leap it's not an incremental development and and the, so the smart ones are, are doing their incremental and applying little by little as they go it takes a lot of patience takes a lot of discipline and uh we cannabis folks are really excited you know it's, it's something that we're challenged with right now in washington state you cannot really technically be vertical you can be what two out of the three that's right. And that's a good point. Yeah. And the reason I bring it up is what do you think still the most lucrative aspect of cannabis in, in I-502 Washington? You know, it's, it's crazy. You might disagree. You probably disagree with me. Uh, but I, I, I just think that the farming aspect of it is, is where it's at. I, I really do because you're producing the supply that's needed. 
that's in demand. And if you can focus on producing that out of the ground, in the hoops, and do it and, and come out with the quality that the market's looking for, which I believe we can, the cost of that operation is nowhere close to what it is with processing. I mean, you, you know what the cost, startup costs are for processing. It's, oh. it's more, it's more, right? <laughs> it's a lot yes. more. It's not a little bit more, it's a lot more. And also land doesn't break, but vacuum pumps do. yes i mean i very much believe that without the processing abilities you're handicapped but on a fundamental level i i I still fall back on the farm and the production but still this all boils down to it you really like growing cannabis you have a love affair with growing cannabis i really do and it's uh, quite annoying to the folks in the house but that's okay <laughs> i mean it's so it's so much that you know you know i have my own examples i have a little project myself that i'm trying to revive an old strain um because i can't really count on anybody else to do it but i just love it so much every single day that plant is communicating something different it's it's just wonderful to see your results you know whatever you do to that plant you're going to see what the results are so the immediate feedback is so satisfying to me just growing it right and that's just growing it and then it goes on and on and on <laughs> i just love it you know i really do it's it's a it keeps me grounded yeah i just i just and i love meeting people who have the same passion okay such as you guys and uh yeah hopefully you guys get to experience the legal thc market at some point yeah, well, everybody here is thoroughly convinced that once we have legal cannabis, all their problems that they're they're suffering from growing high CBD cannabis will go away. Will just and, disappear. Yeah, <laughs> I just I do. We love that. It's just like yeah. I said. Do you know anybody that runs a, a recreational cannabis company? No. I said, well, maybe you should get to know someone because <laughs> this is gonna it's gonna be just as difficult. We really haven't even talked about the compliance. I mean, yeah, right. The tracking and the compliancy and yeah. What software are you guys running for as compliancy? We're using a software called Mr. Kraken. So you guys had, what was it? Uh, BioTrack THC for a bit. Yeah. And then they, they were a software company coming out of Florida who saw amazing opportunity to get into the legal market. And unfortunately they didn't, they didn't produce a really good platform, but it was good enough to get into the system. It was challenging. Biotrack uh, ultimately got fired, and then we, it, during the time that we shut down, and then when we got st- started up again, we went with a more reliable tracking system. I know we got to close this out because you're a successful cannabis farmer and have you got a crop in the ground. How much money you guys spend a year probably trying to do being compliant? Hmm, just in compliance. Yeah. So the licenses, the cameras, the the tracking system. uh, Let's see. I would say up to, you know, it'd probably be up to like 25 to 30 grand. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Because that's one of the things that these people, and you still, uh, and you still can't, uh, what are you able to deduct? Because you're a farmer, you get to deduct almost everything. Not in cannabis. No, unfortunately, not in cannabis. 
Well, no, but I, so, but you get your production cost, but then after you guys, the farming cost, then you can't deduct that, right? I, I believe so, Darbo. I, yeah. I'm not quite 100% sure, but yeah. So the, the 280E uh, is really only applies to things like your assets, right? Like your machinery well, and yeah, and anything you do for sales, promotion, right. that stuff. The reason I'm saying this is, is for those folks that you know who are now in these states like Virginia and Connecticut, and New York, and New Jersey, and New Mexico that are now thinking about getting into cannabis. It's not nearly as lucrative as people think it is, is it? No, it's certainly not. I said, basically, then we should get from you is that if you don't really, really, really love cannabis, probably shouldn't try to own a cannabis company. That's the, probably the best advice that you can give somebody on the front end. Yep. Is there anything you want to promote, Donald? CRC Cannabis. We're, um, we're out here in, Se in Seattle, Washington, and hopefully you'll be seeing us, more of us, you know, coming up after this year and Hopefully we have a good crop to bring out to market for everyone to enjoy. And that's Columbia River Cannabis. They're an I-502 company in Washington State. I'm going to wind this up. I've got uh, Abby McCullough uh, and Ava and Mark Stepp of Uppercut. And this is Harold Jarbo, a.k.a. The Old Hemp Farmer. And I cannot thank you enough for coming in and listening to my old friend, Donald Saucy of Columbia River Cannabis. As always, keep one eye on the weather and the other eye on the market. See you guys. Right. See you guys. Bye. Bye. Full Contact Cannabis is a Tennessee Homegrown and Uppercut Media production. You can find Tennessee Homegrown on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Visit our website, tnhomegrown.com, for more background and information covered in our podcast. Full Contact Cannabis is created by Jarbo, the old hemp farmer. Audio recordist, Abby McCullough. Post-production services provided by Uppercut Media and can be reached at uppercutmedia.com.